Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. If you feel like there's been an unending string of gun violence in the United States this year, you're right. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there's been at least four mass shootings every week in 2022. Our guest today thinks gun violence is a public health crisis, and we should respond to it the same way we target drunk driving, heart disease, and even COVID. Megan Ranney is an emergency room doctor and the academic dean at Brown University's School of Public Health. We'll talk about her ideas on how to address this crisis and more after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Megan Ranney. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me in the studio. So what do you mean when you say that gun violence is a public health crisis? So listen, firearms kill more than 100 people every day across the United States. More than 200 are injured. And when I call it a public health crisis, it's talking about all those people who are physically hurt. It's also talking about the ripple effect Every one of those gunshot wounds hurts not just the victim, but also their family, their friends, their larger community. Yeah, what do you see in the emergency room when you when someone comes in with a gunshot wound? The average person doesn't see the impact of that. Tell us about that. It's hard to describe what a bullet does to the human body. And let me start by saying, actually, most injuries that we see in the ER are handgun injuries. Regardless of what type of firearm it is, a bullet creates a hole. It destroys muscle, organs, shatters bones, and it also creates psychological damage. You know, I take care of lots of folks who are really sick and hurt for lots of reasons, but there is something different about being shot with a gun. Not everyone agrees with the perspective that gun violence is a public health crisis. Like a few years ago, the National Rifle Association sent out a tweet telling, quote, self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. What do you think when you read a message like that? So I'm not interested in going up against the NRA. I also think that labeling doctors as being anti-gun is short-sighted. 40% of physicians, like 40% of Americans, are firearm owners. 
This isn't about being pro or anti-gun any more than doctors are pro or anti-cars. It's about applying that basic public health approach to reduce the number of gun injuries and gun deaths the same way that we've effectively decreased car crash injuries and deaths by more than 70% over the last 50 years, not by taking away cars, but by making them safer, by changing policies around them, by educating people on the importance of not driving drunk, the importance of putting your kid in a car seat, right? It's those basic strategies that can help us do better for firearm injury as well. Yeah, you've talked about four steps to address gun violence. What are those? So the first step is to have accurate data. Right now, we don't even know how many people are injured by guns every year in the United States, much less who they are, what their risk factors are, or how to prevent it. So first step is getting good data. Second step is identifying who's most at risk. Third step is developing interventions that make a difference. So either individual-level interventions, things like someone who's showing signs of being dangerous, making sure that they don't have access or, to a gun, or bigger-level interventions, things like making sure that firearms can't be used by folks who they don't legally belong to. And then the last step is, once you figure out what works, making sure that it's put into place. An example here is with red flag laws, which we know work to both decrease gun suicide and to decrease mass shootings, unfortunately, most folks don't even know that they exist, much less how to use them. So we need to do more educational resources to get those in place and get them used correctly. You helped found the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. Tell me about that group's work. So a firm was created. It's a partnership between me and a fellow physician who's a firearm owner, rifle safety instructor. It was formed with the idea that we've been stuck for too long in this debate between, and I'm going to make the extreme, so I know this is not everyone, but on the one extreme, you have folks that say, just give everybody a gun. On the other extreme, you have folks that say, we just have to get rid of all the guns. Let me be clear that neither of those are practical or appropriate in the country that we live in today. So my co-founder and I came together to create this program that was dedicated to approaching gun violence as a public health problem, bringing together communities that hadn't traditionally worked together to help stop firearm injury and death and creating programs that can effectively be put in place, whether you're in rural Missouri, whether you're in Pawtucket, or whether you're in Montana. So what do you think are the key policy changes that we need to make to address gun violence in the country? So policy is critical, and there are some really important policies that we have here in Rhode Island and that are being started nationwide, things like having accurate background checks, having red flag laws, restricting access to firearms for those that have been convicted, for example, of domestic violence. Those make a huge difference. In addition to policy, though, Ed, you also need the change in social norms. So uh, the example I often give is the laws around texting and driving. We have good laws in place here in our state, but how often are you driving down 95 and see somebody on their phone? Yeah, yeah. We haven't actually changed people's acceptance in their brain of texting and driving, and we certainly haven't fully enforced that law. So if we're going to put policies in place, we also need to do the work to change people's behavior. This year, the General Assembly passed three gun bills, including a ban on magazines with more than 10 rounds. What do you think about the measures that passed in Rhode Island this year, and what more steps should Rhode Island take? So I think the measures that passed in Rhode Island this year are a great step. 
I think the thing that would make the most difference but is unlikely to ever happen in this country is approaching firearm ownership the same way that we approach car ownership or licensing, right? So it's not just that you have to take a 10-question test in order to get your permit, but that you're expected to train. You're expected to demonstrate that you are both mentally and physically competent, that you're expected to show proficiency in how to safely handle a firearm and how to safely store it. That would be tremendous. I don't see that happening in the short term. So what are the things that everyday people can do to combat gun violence in their families, in their communities? I love this question because it highlights that it's not an us-against-them problem. This is about firearm owners and non-firearm owners coming together. So recognizing that about 40% of us do have a firearm in the home, the first thing is to make sure that it's stored safely, which means locked, ideally unloaded, but really accessible only to the person who's properly trained in firearm handling and usage. The second thing is to know the danger signs for someone being at risk of hurting themselves, two-thirds of gun deaths in this country are suicide, or at risk of hurting others. Those are things like, yes, although mental illness is not a cause of gun violence in general, being severely depressed, having suicidal thoughts, signs of hatred, social media postings, domestic violence, dementia, those can all be signs that someone's at higher risk of hurting themselves or someone else. So that's the second step, is to know those danger signs. And then the third step is to know what to do about them. If you or someone you love owns or has access to a firearm and is showing one of those danger signs, know how to put space and time between them and a firearm. It might be as simple as making sure that the firearm is locked up and your loved one doesn't know where the key to the safe is. Hmm. Or it might be more complicated, getting them resources. If they're a victim of domestic violence, contacting domestic violence advocates. And sometimes it's about advocacy on a larger level I think about the work that I do with the Nonviolence Institute here in Providence. I'm fortunate enough to sit on their board and the type of work that they do to try to create that space and time to take conflicts down a level and to help keep communities safe. And is part of it learning how to access those red flag laws? Because we have one here in Rhode Island. We do have red flag laws in Rhode Island. I will be clear that as a healthcare provider, I can't use it. It's for family and friends mm-hmm. or for law enforcement. To me, a red flag law is a last resort. It's not the first thing you do, right? The first thing you do is you try to get your loved one help. You try to kind of have a reasonable discussion, but know that they do exist and you can call the police and they know across our state they've been working real hard to educate folks on how to use it. It seems like every week now we hear about another mass shooting. What keeps you motivated to face all this trauma? Well, as an ER doc, the moment when I give up, I know that there's no more hope. So part of it is that I do still see spaces where we can make progress. And I've seen evidence of places where we've made progress together. Okay, give, give us one because sometimes it seems like it there feels is hopeless. Not, yeah. there's not a lot of progress. Well, so I'm, I'm going to give you a couple examples from my co-founder of a firm. It's in the state of Vermont. They have a red flag law. And I know of a few cases of mass shootings that have been stopped through folks noticing danger signs and doing something about it, sometimes just within the family, sometimes by involving law enforcement officers. I'll give you another example as well. One of the research projects that I'm working on is a partnership between my group here at Brown and at Rhode Island Hospital and 4-H. And we're working together. They do a lot of firearm safety instruction for kids across the United States, kids for whom hunting and fishing and agriculture is part of their daily life. They also do a lot of leadership training for these kids. 
So we're partnering with them to teach the kids about these danger signs, to help make them truly responsible firearm owners and have them be leaders in their own community to help reduce the chance of firearm injury. The New York Times had a story this week saying that COVID-19 is surging around the United States with one of the most transmissible variants of the pandemic yet. Mm. But this time, the public health authorities are holding back, the story said. So what's going on here? (laughs) From one epidemic to another. (laughs) Well, we get to monkeypox next. Absolutely. Uh, But so here's the deal with BA4 and BA5. It is certainly more transmissible. It is not more dangerous than the prior variants. And the vaccines are still holding up to protect folks from hospitalization and death. So what we're seeing is that we have changed the course of COVID thanks to vaccines, thanks to access to medications like Paxlovid, and thanks to things like Evashield, which is an injectable medication for people who are immunosuppressed hmm. to help them fight off getting infected with COVID. It's an add-on to vaccines. Oh, wow. So we've got these new tools in our toolkit that are helping to reduce the severity of COVID and which mean that we don't have to go to things like mask mandates at this point in many states. Yeah, you saw New York City just recommended that people wear masks inside again. Should Rhode Island be doing that? So at this point in Rhode Island, I would recommend for folks to wear masks in crowded indoor locations. Mm -hmm. The amount of COVID that's out there is certainly underreported because most of us are doing home tests instead of going to the pharmacy or to the ER. So if you're in a crowded indoor location, I do recommend masking indoors. Certainly if you're immunosuppressed, older, or live with someone who's higher risk, please wear a mask indoors. But there is this element of also telling folks, go get your vaccine, go get your third shot if you haven't. And for those who are age 50 plus, go get your fourth shot. Only about 25% of those who are eligible for the fourth shot and are age 65 plus have actually gotten it. It is the best thing you can do to keep yourself out of the hospital. The boosters? Do we need to do more in Rhode Island to boost our booster rate? We need to do a lot to boost our booster rate. We also have to boost our vaccination rate of the younger kids. The Globe just had a story this week about reinfections. And I know a neighbor who had... COVID and got it again like three weeks later. What's going on? How does that happen? And what do you, what can be done about it? So unfortunately, our predictions about COVID came true in that it is mutating. And these new variants are different enough from the old variants that they escape the immune response that you developed from prior infections. So that's why we're seeing reinfections. The thing that scares me about the reinfections, Ed, is that there's no guarantee that they're going to be more mild. And there's some studies that suggest, not definite, but there's suggestions that if you get reinfected multiple times, you have a higher risk of developing long COVID, which are those long-lasting symptoms of fatigue, lung problems, kidney problems, oh. brain problems. So it's not that you're you're building up immunity. You're actually uh, at greater risk if you keep getting it over and over? That's what some of the preliminary data shows. When Dr. Anthony Fauci spoke to Roger Williams University graduates earlier this year, he warned about lies, conspiracy theories, and the politicization of science, saying it could lead to a society where veracity becomes subservient to propaganda. How much do you see COVID being politicized and misinformation out there, and what can be done about it? I think this is one of the saddest things about the pandemic, is watching some well-funded folks who are making money off of spreading lies and disinformation seed these 
mistruths among the general population. Our level of knowledge about this virus is amazing, given that it's only been around for a little more than two years. And yet folks have created these lies about the truth about the virus, where it came from, how you prevent it, that have made the average person awfully confused. When folks ask me what the next big public health danger is, I actually think that belief in science is the next biggest danger to public health. Wow. And you mentioned monkeypox. So, <laughs> you know, we got a lot to worry about. Do we need to worry about monkeypox? What, what's the latest on that? So monkeypox is real, and there have been cases here in Rhode Island. It is not yet something that the average person needs to worry about going about their daily business. It's really spread through skin-to-skin -skin contact, so really through very close physical contact. That said, I think the number of cases of monkeypox are actually far larger than what we're reporting because hmm. we still have some trouble with testing. And unfortunately, we're repeating a lot of the same mistakes that we made early in COVID with slow delivery of medications and vaccines, slow rollout of testing, and stigmatization of those populations who right now are most likely to have monkeypox, which are largely men who have sex with men at this moment, although it is not a disease that is limited to that population. It's just where we've identified most of the cases so far. Finally, I read that you served in the Peace Corps in the Ivory Coast. Tell us what you remember most from that experience. <sighs> Two things. One are my friends, some of whom I'm still in touch with, the folks that I shared meals with and did projects with in my village every day. One of them is now a pharmacist in the major, the biggest city in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and hmm. is doing amazing stuff. So we'll have conversations about public health in, in her country versus here. The other big thing that I remember and that changed my trajectory and influences what I do every day was seeing that interplay between health and access to information and to hope. So I was there in the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. There was no access to the anti-HIV medications for my villagers or friends. And that created, as a result, this whole network of mistruths and lies about what HIV and AIDS were. People said it was magic or sorcery. They said it was different diseases like hepatitis. And then when we were able to get people access to meds, they suddenly started saying, yes, this is HIV because they had hope, they had something to treat it, and there was a reason to test themselves. Those lessons are things that I have carried with me into my work in the emergency department, my work at the School of Public Health here at Brown, and that inform the way that I approach public health problems, which is you have to work with the community, you have to listen to their fears, you have to provide solutions to their fears, and the path to better health is always in interplay between doing the science and making sure that we work on the underlying societal issues that allow disease or injury to spread. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. In a classic Rhode Island story, an armed suspect made off of $22,000 in $1 bills after robbing the Cadillac Lounge Strip Club on Charles Street earlier this week. My colleague Brian Amaral has the details. My colleague Alexa Gagas has a story on the arrest of one of Governor Dan McKee's senior advisors over the weekend. And I have a story about Providence mayoral candidate Gonzalo Cuervo, 
He received his diploma in 2020, but he indicated he already had a bachelor's degree on application forms from 2015. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.